all the kind of different experiences I had in medicine, in medical school, earlier in training, there was just something so powerful when working with those with substance use disorders that, that really deeply resonated with me. Uh, the idea that someone could come in, particularly like seeing them for the first time in an emergency department or, or just kind of coming on to a unit, the transformation that could occur in sometimes a matter of days, uh, certainly in the matter of, of weeks and months to then follow up with them as an outpatient uh, of someone really gaining a sense of their identity, their life and meaning back. Uh, it it kind of came full circle again. The, the questions that I had um, as, as a child uh, that stayed with me throughout my professional experiences here in real time, I could be part of people's lives uh, as they were answering some of those questions for themselves and finding ways uh, to gain meaning and, and purpose. And I think there's so many powerful traditions in the context of recovery, certainly from the 12-step frameworks of AA to NA um, to uh, the, the idea that by being part of other people's lives, by being able to be a kind of vehicle of change, a vehicle of service, that we ourselves uh, are, are the ones that benefit the most from that. there, Recovery Nation producer John here. In this episode of Full Potential Now, Ted sits down with Dr. Herschel Karani, Medical Director of Wellbridge Addiction Treatment and Research. Join us as Ted and Dr. Karani answer the question, what is rehab and what makes for quality rehab? Stay tuned. When we get into alcohol and drug treatment, everyone will oftentimes say that person needs rehab. Maybe their alcohol or drug use has spun out of control and they are facing dangerous situations. Teeter on the edge of possibly dying from alcohol or drug use. Their family members are worried or have been worried for days, if not months or years, hoping that this person will finally ask and get help. It can become frustrating and heartbreaking as people struggle for their lives along with their family members. What exactly does rehab mean, and what do people generally understand to be the options? Let's lift the veil on substance abuse treatment and what rehab actually means. It really falls back on the American Society of Addiction Medicine, also known as ASAM, that outlines four key levels of care for people facing addictions. Level one is considered outpatient, and that person will see a therapist one to two times per week, and they'll be able to address their addiction issues. Level two is considered intensive outpatient. That person will have to come multiple times per week to multiple groups and maybe see their individual therapist multiple times in order to remain sober. But the magic line is between level two and level three. Level three is considered residential treatment or rehab. It means the person lives there 24 seven. They'll receive a variety of group services, individual services, um, and sobriety services so that when they get out, 
of rehab or residential treatment, they'll be armed and ready to stay sober. Level four is considered hospitalization, and that mostly relates to people who encounter a major medical issue while being addicted. So when we unravel it, when we say rehab, we are really talking about that overnight stay at a facility for 28 to 30 days. You're gonna live there 24 seven, and you're hopefully gonna gain those sobriety or recovery skills in order to sustain sobriety long-term. However, the thing we should know about these facilities is some are excellent, some good, some average, and some below average. In my clinical travels as a supervisor at different residential facilities, and my experiences of them, is that there are in fact excellent, above average, good, average, and below average facilities. So what constitutes a good rehab facility from a not so good rehab facility? Wellbridge is fully a addiction treatment and research center. And over the last decade, the, the idea originated with our founder, his name is Mr. Andrew Drazen, in response to a number of events in his life, but most notably very early in his life, his mother had passed away from complex set of substance-related issues. And the impressions that that left him with were that addiction often is relegated to being kept in the shadows. There wasn't a lot of discussion around what his mother had struggled with or the circumstances of her death. And that left an indelible impression in his mind. And he went on to have a successful business career. And as he then wound that career down, I think really was seeking for a way to gain perhaps some meaning and closure to those early life events. And he became very focused on developing a addiction center that embodied a very science-driven approach. And that, again, took root for him about a decade ago, led down many roads, but culminated with a really unique partnership between Northwell Health, which is the single largest employer in New York State, and a health system that encompasses uh, over 23 hospitals now, uh, an array of services, as well as uh, with Engel Berman. And uh, they represent a very dynamic private real estate group by Jan Berman and Stephen Krieger, who are often looking for innovative ways to apply their entrepreneurship. So Wellbridge kind of exists at the, the nexus of these three entities. Uh, and in, in so many ways, uh, I feel was the exact recipe to try to do something transformative uh, in this field. So we have developed a 96-acre campus in Calverton. It consists of uh, three primary levels of care, two inpatient levels, which include uh, medical stabilization, which is often regarded as detoxification, as well as an inpatient rehab, and um, an entire residential program. 
So those are the three core treatment arms of Wellbridge. But I'd say that they're really at the heart of Wellbridge is the research center. And there uh, on campus, uh, a very precisely designed facility to focus on an array of types of research projects. And we are steadily now building the, the team there that we're very hopeful will start to catalyze a very different way of approaching addiction care broadly, but certainly within our own walls, serve as the way to accelerate how we learn from our patients and how we apply those experiences to future patients. Man, I am digging this. And it's Wellbridge, right, in New York, in New York State? Correct. It's located yes. in Eastern Long Island in Calverton. Um, it's, uh, Calverton actually has a, a pretty, pretty unique heritage itself. Uh, probably most folks recognize the name as there's a very large national cemetery here. Uh, but there's a long kind of tradition of, of military activities. The complex that we now um, have a parcel of uh, was in its full extent over a thousand acres and was owned by uh, Northrop Grumman going back to, I believe, the 60s. Uh, and so uh, like the F-16 uh, fighter planes from Top Gun, th those are actually originally developed here. And uh, the, the longest runway, uh, I think it's the longest runway on the East Coast, um, actually adjoins part of our campus. So um, wow. I, I, that and uh, my initial visits out here really resonated with me in this kind of the symbolism of a place where folks can kind of take off into a new phase of their life and, and into their recovery. Yeah, there's some traditions of that sort that we've uh, to embrace. So even when we think of rehab, like what goes on behind the curtains for 30 days? person is living there 24-7, supposedly gaining all these skills, are they in non-stop treatment? Is their family involved? Are they going to AA or NA meetings while they're at the treatment facilities? Are all the treatment centers the same? Do they provide the same exact services, such as individual group relapse prevention training as well as family therapy? Or do they vary? How do we tell a good program from another? I mean, it's sort of a relief to have somebody go to residential treatment because we can ensure pretty much that they're going to be safe 24-7 for 28 to 30 days. And we will be able to actually, as family members, get our lives back together. But how do we know if someone is actually improving there? We know that the majority of people that landed residential treatment will not relapse while they're there. And it's not rocket science. It's just that they're at a facility with supervised staff and they're living there 24-7. It makes it less likely that they'll relapse. Ethan, I'm like really already queuing into. Herschel is this um, idea of innovation in the field of addiction. So I've been out in the field for about 20 some years. I've worked in all the different modalities, supervisor, therapist, all that kind of good stuff. Um, director. And uh, I think like the field of addiction has moved relatively slow 
at a snail's pace when we look at the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and we got all this really great brain research coming out. You know, we got in everybody's into the reward pathway and the genetics involved, locating the genes, which I think is like huge for the, in the in the field of addiction. But what I have discovered, so I'm a consultant with different agencies as well, is like oftentimes we're using old models, super old models of the way it always is. This is how we always do IOP group, intensive outpatient. This is everybody does 30 days in residential. And I, I always, as a consultant, I always ask, well, why 30 days? Where did that come from? Right. Um, and uh, if you go back, I don't know if this is exactly where it came from, but if you go way back into the, uh, the folklore, Hazleton up in Minnesota actually had 30 lectures in 30 days. Mm-hmm. So way back in 70s or so. So um, it's always interesting to watch the field. And I meet so many great people and great clients out, out, out in the field over the years um, but one of the things I think that have been really lacking is this idea of innovating the field, not just sitting on our laurels saying, all right, we have it all figured out. We deliver. I mean, everybody delivers evidence-based treatment. Everybody does that. But I'm really curious, not, not a lot of places have a research center connected to them. So um, I like this idea of doing research. Um, so I don't know if you could, you know, sort of let, uh, give us a, a little tidbit of some of the research, maybe ideas you guys are circling around. Cause I think a lot of people out in the field and, and listeners would, I think definitely like to hear that. Sure. Um, no, I, I think many of the concepts you just shared, um, uh, are certainly, uh, questions that I think, uh, many practitioners ask often are not able to really take on redefining or, or reframing an entire infrastructure of care. And when we look especially at the overlay of managed care now, that often also just reinforces this kind of calendar care type of approach that um, someone with a complex medical condition, such as a substance use disorder, somehow is just arbitrarily reaching therapeutic endpoints after seven days, after 14 days or 28 days. Um, in many ways, I, I feel that aspects of that are really misguided. The, at the same time though, uh, for many, many individuals and their families struggling with substance use disorders, there's just such a profound vulnerability that underlies the place that they're in, especially in the midst of crisis. And uh, I think it's really important, though we are um, very humbly taking on the responsibilities of being a new center, trying to bring ideas of innovation, uh, I in no way, shape, or form want to conflate that with the idea that uh, we are promising cures or that uh, research suddenly has uh, all the answers that folks need today. Um, I think we have to be, I think good research starts with transparency, starts with a lot of oversight and an expectation that processes take time to do them properly. So with that, uh, to the, some of the themes you were naming, 
I um, going back to this, even my earliest uh, experiences in uh, undergrad and, and medical school, I felt that there's such a wealth of knowledge, particularly in brain science, uh, as it pertains to addiction. But translating that to the bedside, actually delivering solutions, delivering actionable tools for patients um, is still, uh, there's many, many barriers that we encounter. Um, perhaps not the least of which is that it's important to be able to bring together uh, a knowledgeable, well-trained group of providers that can take new ideas from research and actually implement them. In many cases, uh, you know, when we look across the country, uh, one statistic that, that always sticks out to me, for instance, in regards to the opioid crisis is that approximately 50% of U.S. counties do not have a buprenorphine provider. So approximately half the country doesn't have access to a medication that has a overwhelming body of evidence to support the efficacy of. So even if we had a number of other tools to make available, if we don't even have the providers out in communities to uh, evaluate and appropriately manage these things, um, the science uh, really doesn't go very far. So one of the steps that we have tried uh, is to start to eliminate some of these intrinsic barriers. Let's bring scientists and clinicians under the same roof. Let's foster dialogues where the experiences that patients are bringing to clinicians are directly informing the activities of our researchers. And ideally then there's this feed forward that can occur, that information is being tracked, processes are being managed by researchers, and then the research ideas, uh, developments start to advance from there and then directly influence uh, the care that clinicians are administering. Uh, so that, that's one example of a pathway we've tried to really focus on. Uh, one of the areas that we initially targeted was the development of our family therapy program. So um, at one level, we viewed that Building a campus of this sort uh, would probably be impossible in New York City. Um, there's not really 96 acres uh, readily available. Uh, I think Central Park is uh, already spoken for. So, Unless you have like a zillion dollars. Right, or, or that. Um, so we're located about um, an hour and 30 minutes uh, from Manhattan about a 90-minute drive, um, that's with traffic. On a good day, you can probably make it here in about an hour and 15. Um, so the, the rationale in large part for the location was that the majority of folks that have sought care from the East Coast, I think have often headed uh, either to Florida, to California, and from the outset of a patient seeking care, there's this rift that's created, that the family is being separated from the process that uh, the patient is engaging in. Uh, we wanted and, and really aimed to turn that on its head. We view the family as an extension uh, directly of the patient. And 
being able to not only engage the patient and their family from the outset of care is something really critical to supporting the processes in early recovery, but most critically, the longitudinal outcome of supporting and sustaining an individual's recovery efforts long after they leave Wellbridge is going to hinge on the family's involvement and more importantly, the family's preparedness to really be able to navigate the challenges that continue to come up. So we sought out a collaboration with um, some leaders in family therapy research. Uh, we began to collaborate on designing a very rigorous family therapy program, which uh, not only has a, a manualized approach for clinicians, but also a, a kind of bedrock of research metrics, measurements uh, that allow us to fidelity test what's happening in family therapy sessions, and then use that information to, as a lens, if you will, to view the efficacy of the interventions that are being made, and then hopefully shape that uh, as a way to train and continue to teach our clinicians uh, as they move forward. Man, you, you guys are like cutting edge out there. I'm just telling you. Um, so the family therapy piece, I mean, even when you look at all, all the research behind that, you look at SAMHSA, the National Institute of Health, Family therapy is identified as, as one of the five evidence-based practices to do with people struggling with addiction. So in my, in my life as a consultant supervisor, when I go to clinics, especially like these rural clinics, well, we discover two things in Wisconsin. One is um, a lot of them don't even have a medication-assisted treatment program, so they're handcuffed right there. But number two is everybody... And the agencies and clinics know that family therapy is good to do, um, but it's usually typically due to actually the logistics, the scheduling, uh, the therapist time. And then I think some therapists that aren't as strong at family therapy may have a tendency to avoid it. Um, and they're like, hey, I don't want to bring two or three other people into the room um, I, we're just getting helping this person get on track, but I don't know if I could deal with all these other people and all the reactions to what has been going on. But in the end, it is such a big piece to success I've discovered. Um, so I actually personally, I, I'm a, I have a master's in counseling psychology, but I love like when I uh, facilitate a team, clinical team, I love to have, in Wisconsin, we call them LMFTs, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapists. I love to have them as part of the clinical team, a lots of them, because what ends up happening is you end up with, I'm not saying counselors, we get family therapy training, all that kind of stuff, for sure. But what I find that is a big miss in the field in terms of clinical supervision is that agencies are not tapping into the LMFT's background. They have the clinical supervisor. If the clinical supervisor is not an LMFT, it doesn't have a family therapy background, then what I've walked into, I see family therapy not really being pushed a whole bunch. It's kind of hodgepodge. Um, but then what I've been trying to encourage people to do is to develop these family therapy frameworks and you've actually taken it even to another level by saying, let's actually look at the efficacy of this stuff. And part of clinician training is 
Do they do fidelity to the model? So what are the key ingredients for a successful rehab center? Probably counselors who have a lot of experience and have a great skill set to help. Probably management that backs them up and creates a great facility for people to get well in. But what happens if the residential facility counselors are working at isn't really well run and the counselors don't actually have a ton of experience? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what the conclusion might be. Maybe the clients wouldn't do as well. So what do we think are the key ingredients to a great rehab program? Not only for the clients, but maybe also for the counselors. It would seem that the longer the counselors stay in the field, the more experience they get and the better they get at helping clients. They don't advance their skills when they get to an agency. And I call it the grind. They load them up with clients. They just see clients all the time. Um, and then there's no growth mechanism other than maybe they do some continuing ad. But then even when we know people do continuing ad and they come back to the agency, they oftentimes maybe use one or two ideas, but they don't really take it anywhere from there. So the idea, and this is my first rant to the podcast, um, the idea that that out in your clinic, your or, or your your I don't know, clinic is selling it short. I should say I don't even know what to call. It. What's a good name for it? How about it's center? Like, How about center? Wellbridge Center. You're actually having people do fidelity to models in family therapy. You recognize the importance of it, and then it's a the fact that therapists are being evaluated on some capacity is going to increase their skill level. Um, I, I'm bored, man. I'm just telling you, you, you guys are out there. You guys are like a shining star out in the galaxy of not very many shining stars. Um, pushing I, I, the album. I uh, really appreciate your kind words and how uh, precisely you're, you're picking up on many of the things that we have tried to design responses to. Um, uh, the, the study that you're citing, I mean, at, at one level, uh, we, we are fundamentally dealing with a very human field, and um, humans are very hodgepodge. So uh, it's very hard to simply apply a textbook to something as complex and nuanced as uh, substance use disorder. But at the same time, in order to really evaluate the efficacy of any intervention, there has to be a systematic framework that underlies it. And um, to the point you're naming, in fact, one of the, the first uh, um, hires for us and one of the positions I especially prioritized was finding an LMFT. And so the director of our family therapy program is an LMFT. Her name is Lisa Minio. And um, in many ways, it's, um, uh, it's a light years away from the background and skill and experience that a counselor that hasn't had that kind of training or a therapist that hasn't had that kind of training it has the capacity to deliver. I think that unfortunately in our field, the term family therapy is very liberally applied to a kind of spectrum of supportive counseling that takes place, which absolutely has value, absolutely serves a 
a place to, to, to help those in need, but is quite different than applying uh, bona fide family therapy and having the, the structure and continuity uh, and also having a well-defined framework that these are the things that are going to be delivered over this span of time and then how that evolves over the course of someone's care. So in, uh, incidentally, the majority of family therapy research has primarily taken place in outpatient context. To, uh, so one of the first challenges we faced is adapting the knowledge that exists in that field to an inpatient and residential environment. Uh, and it's quite striking because there's just not a lot of literature on the uh, evaluation, implementation of family therapy in uh, inpatient and residential settings. So we're, we're hopeful that we can really be a, a, a steward of shaping frameworks in that area. Uh, and as we start to see and be involved in more patients' lives, uh, that we, we have an important story to tell. Yeah, I mean, this is incredible. I, I can't say I've really seen a ton of centers across the country that are doing really what you guys are doing, you guys and gals are trying to do here. I mean, it's incredible. Um, right. And I've seen the value of it just in residential treatment. Um, I think a couple of years back when I came in as a supervisor director of a, of a facility and they were doing like hodgepodge family therapy, like a couple family sessions. That was it. And then we, we ended up doing a multifamily group, educational group. And, uh, and, and what we saw was we saw um, our clients being more successful, more connected, the families being more connected with, with what's going on. And uh, I always kind of think of it this way, like the person gets unfortunately hooked into addiction on one side. But the family is, and their support system is walking along with them. You know what I'm saying? You like, you like, like my hands here. Right. <laughs> Walk along. So they go through, they get drugged through the mud. Like a lot of bad stuff happens sometimes. When somebody gets addicted, um, you increase the odds that not such good things are going to be happening to the family. Addiction doesn't really foster a lot of close relationships, is my point. So they're there, they're hanging in. Some of them get burned out. They draw the limits. They say enough, enough. The person goes into rehab. And what I see generally oftentimes is that the family just kind of drops out. The person goes to rehab, they get all better. They're ready to get out. And then the family rejoins And this end. And I like, I think this is what I've promoted the whole time. And I love the fact you guys are taking it to a whole new level, but that family has to be brought along and connected with this experience because it's actually they're going through the experience too believe it or not they're going through the experience of somebody getting sober and it makes me think back i started out in addiction maybe 2002 and you'll probably identify with this but um somebody quit and they were like ted do you want to do family group and I'm like, I'm always like one of these guys like, yeah, I'll, I'll do family group. You got the curriculum. So like one session prepper and then she's gone. She left. She gave two weeks notice or three weeks notice. She's gone. Ted, you're the new family group guy. And so I had this evidence-based curriculum. And what we'd end up having is we'd end up with 
typically six people, six to seven um, members would show up or uh, people in our program in the intensive outpatient program. And then more times than that, it wasn't really family. It was more of like a couple's group. So their partners would come in. And we had this like four-week curriculum. I remember it vividly because um, it what happened was so profound. So the first two weeks of the group, so they're in intensive outpatient for two weeks or three weeks. So they, they got like three or four weeks sober. Then we enter them into the family group. So now they're on like week five, probably week six. The first two weeks of family group, great. We're giving the partners education, welcoming them, doing the typical stuff. Um, the person's talking about where they are in their recovery. Um, but then it was almost like, it was like this man, week three, I ran the cycle for a year. It was always week three. It was like the anger group. Like the partners all came in, they're like, all right, so-and-so, you're stable, you're in counseling, this is good. Now I'm gonna tell you all the bad things that you did that you need to be reminded of. Right. And so it was like, and so of course it was like pacing it out and helping people understand. We got, I, I think we got better as we did the group, but there wasn't a really a space for that. And so right. it really opened my eyes to this idea of like, they're going through the experience too. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, um, I appreciate the, the experiences you're sharing because uh, I think those speak to uh, the many realities in particularly uh, outpatient clinics, uh, in rural areas or in other um, underserved communities where uh, at a fundamental level, you're highlighting just the deep implementation problem that arises when you're trying to apply evidence-based practices. So the, the manual that may have been sitting on the shelf in the clinic may represent you know, the, the best cutting edge family therapy, but uh, it's when you know, Ted just happens to be in today to do this group, so here it is. Uh, that, 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 right, and uh, I think that uh, it remains a, a big Achilles heel of addiction care. And while we are trying um, to be cutting edge, apply uh, a tremendous amount of thought and resources to advance uh, the, the frameworks here, there has to be an acknowledgement of identifying tools that have high feasibility, that these have to be way, to me, um, the, the, the real agenda is identifying knowledge that's generalizable, uh, but also actionable. And hopefully we're now seeing a current where more and more folks are drawn to work in this field that bring an array of skills from you know, day one um, that then can apply the, the extant evidence-based practices to a high degree. And then hopefully that advances as, as time goes on. Um, you know, with that, to, to the point you were making of this of model where sending someone to rehab or sabbatical of sorts and they kind of come back out and back right into the same family system and all of the same dynamics. In many ways, it's not surprising 
that outcomes aren't great. If uh, all you've done is you know, create a, a kind of put someone on a timeout for a while. If the other structural aspects of someone's life, uh, the family being one of the most meaningful, uh, are not also transforming and shifting along with the patient, uh, it's, it's a tough fit. And the, and the expectation that folks can sustain recovery in the face of that, uh, I think, is limited. So we very much want to try to engage patients first and foremost, uh, but hand in hand with that, engage their families. And as far as I see it, in contemporary addiction care, perhaps in contemporary medicine as a whole, uh, the, the single biggest challenge is the lack of engagement in treatment. The, these statistics, I think, get cited very, very often, but among adults, only about one out of 10 Americans that struggles with a substance use disorder, or for that matter, could benefit from treatment, only one out of 10 ever accesses any form of care at all. I think you'd be hard pressed to find really any other medical condition where the overwhelming majority of folks with that condition never seek any treatment at all. And how do we change that? So uh, to the point, uh, you know, our, our uh, uh, website is uh, www.wellbridge.org. Um, I um, certainly hope that uh, from the moment folks start to get a glimpse of our campus, the team we've tried to build, uh, it just represents something that's a lot more accessible. It's not um, you know, moving away from the idea that uh, addiction care has to be done uh, in, in some hidden manner that no, you know, an employer or someone's family or anyone else just can't know about. And I think there too, why engaging the family is so critical. We, we don't want this to be a, a, a secret and a process that only aligns with the, the shame or vulnerability a patient may be feeling. We really want to turn that on its head. When I kind of took inventory of all the fields of medicine I was interested in, uh, it, it especially uh, at this time in our country, uh, I feel addiction just needs really, really um, engaged, passionate, bright young folks to come in. Uh, and, I, and I wanted to be part of that change. Uh, so that's what unfolded for me over the last uh, two decades. Um, and now uh, I, I feel very, very fortunate to be part of an organization that's really, as I see it, just kind of one of a kind in the country right now. Yeah, Dr. Kirani. Um, what, what kind of medicine did you practice? So I, um, my formal training is in psychiatry and I also pursued um, a variety of research fellowships, uh, primarily in brain imaging, uh, but as I, I spent more and more time in the lab. I, I realized that my, my real calling was to, to be at the bedside and I wanted to focus my, my time and efforts uh, much more in, in direct clinical care. Uh, so subsequently, I also completed a addiction psychiatry fellowship uh, and that was at NYU. And that, that's actually what brought me from Texas to New York. Uh, and uh, I really liked life in the city 
it's just uh, kind of uh, bizarre timing uh, that uh, actually ended up moving out uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, and in many ways, I'm very grateful that that's how it worked out. I think things have been very, very challenging for many in, in the city. Um, but that, that uh, is what ended up uh, bringing me out ultimately to, to Calverton and uh, out to Wellbridge. So what have you uh, noticed with, you know, the pandemic, COVID? What have you seen, you know, at, at the Wellbridge uh, Center? How has that impacted you and how are you uh, coping with that? And are you helping people with addiction issues? So um, in, in uh, really no short order, I'd say that um, the pandemic has impacted every aspect of uh, our processes and functions. This campus had, again, been in, in design for almost a decade, uh, but I don't think anyone had ever, ever imagined a, a global pandemic. And certainly New York City and New York State uh, was really where things escalated initially uh, quite, quite dramatically. Uh, Northwell Health, uh, I think, was uh, at the forefront of taking a lot of steps to help many New Yorkers. Um, and we were able to leverage a lot of the experience and knowledge from the health system uh, to implement an entire framework of infection control processes, testing, uh, and have really uh, tried to ensure as safe an environment as possible. Uh, to, you know, precisely answer your question, I think in so many ways, the idea of people gathering is so at the heart of addiction care, whether it's in the community, in different groups or different settings, um, or within treatment environments. And in some ways that's so at odds with the world that COVID forces us into. Um, but yeah. we have definitely found ways to gather safely. Uh, we implemented uh, at a minimum, I'll say, you know, masks are required at all times. I don't have mine on right now because I'm in my office by myself. Um, patients are certainly allowed to take their mask off uh, while they eat or when they're in their rooms by themselves. Uh, but otherwise, uh, we're always trying to reinforce and encourage folks to wear masks at all times. We have plenty of space, fortunately, so our groups are uh, socially distanced. Uh, but I, I, I will humbly say it's still a process. Uh, because it's not uh, particularly natural for folks to do these things all the time. Uh, and we're trying to uh, manage that respectfully and uh, reinforce to everyone this, this is for everyone's safety, uh, not simply to uh, impose uh, some uh, arbitrary set of rules. Yeah. Well, because um, I'm conscientious of the time here, what about... Um, if there's a listener out there thinking about getting uh, help for their addiction, is there any one thing, I mean, not one thing, but what would you like to say to that person? So, you know, that's in fact, perhaps one of the most common questions I hear and, and encounter. Uh, and um, over time, uh, I think the, the single best guidance I can offer is to start a conversation. Identify the, the person in your life that you feel you genuinely trust, that you can 
have a, a, a non-judgmental conversation. Uh, I realize sometimes that itself becomes a bit of a buzzword, uh, but to me it hinges on a conversation where you feel there's trust and safety uh, and start there. Uh, I think from there, uh, there's you know, no shortage of resources Regardless of the community you're in, there's ways to connect remotely, especially I think one of the silver linings of the, the pandemic is that uh, the use of uh, tools like Zoom uh, and telehealth and telepsychiatry have started to really expand. Um, so I'd like to believe that that's going to start to lower the barrier for folks to at least take those initial steps to reach out, start a conversation, start to get more guidance around the experiences or patterns of behaviors that are unfolding in your life. Um, I think that the, the kind of caricature that still persists that uh, someone with a drug problem or an alcohol problem um, has uh, a life that's marked by you know, desperation and despair and uh, in the absence of those qualities in one's own life, it, it means that there is no problem, uh, is really, really misguided. I think that early phases of substance use issues uh, can be subtle. They can uh, start to impact you in ways that uh, may take a lot of other events till it becomes a, a much more evident set of issues. Uh, whereas if you take proper steps to get support and make interventions early on, uh, it, it can really be uh, nothing short of life-saving. So start a conversation. And wherever that looks like in your life, uh, I think that's the first place uh, to, to direct your attention. Uh, I will separately add that I think there's a number of great uh, large national resources online um, that can at least help direct folks to information locally. Uh, SAMHSA.gov uh, has a great treatment locator, variety of resources. Uh, and then separately, I'd say um, NIDA, uh, also has a, a lot of very high level information and, and start to uh, direct folks um, to, to further support, um, just, just to name a few. And incidentally, uh, on our website, again, wellbridge.org, um, we have links to some of the sites I just made. Excellent, excellent. I was just gonna ask you that. What, what are some resources for our listeners? Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much. I just want to thank Dr. Kirani and uh, sharing his wealth of knowledge. Um, I'd have to say um, I've been doing a lot of interviews, and your center definitely uh, floats to the top here in terms of what you're doing out there. So I'm hoping that you guys stay open for many, many, many years and continue to connect the dots. And I would imagine if you continue to do that, um, you'll probably be a potential model for the country, I think, in a lot of ways. So um, and I'm kind of blown away at a lot of the stuff you're doing because I've been in the field a long time and interviewed a lot of people, been around consulting across the country, and, and you're really on it. So definitely check out Wellbridge. Is it .com? .org. .org, wallbridge.org. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I um, really appreciate the, the words of encouragement and, and your impressions. 
and I just want to extend uh, my gratitude to you for being such an important voice in, in sharing such key, key information uh, with your audience. Uh, I, I feel you, you're very much the, the instrument of change that, uh, that we're trying to be as well. Thank you. Awesome. Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here again. Thank you so much to Dr. Herschel Karani for sharing his time with us. To learn more about Dr. Karani and Wellbridge Addiction Treatment and Research, visit wellbridge.org. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode was produced by Ted Isidore and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.